Hi everyone, John Clare here. Welcome to the EvoFi podcast, a finance podcast for humans. Right off the top, if, if my voice sounds a little scratchy, it's because I'm just recovering from a cold and that cold that seems to have swept across offices and schools on the East Coast over the past few months. Sort of reminds me of the Friends episode, you know, where Phoebe catches that cold and makes her singing voice extra gritty. Fear not, I'm not planning to serenade you with her signature song, Smelly Cat, although I have to admit it did cross my mind. Today's episode is on cybersecurity, and more specifically on how to protect yourself and your devices from all of the bad people out there. These days, we pretty much have everything in our life stored on these devices, and we feel we can't overstate the risks and spread the word on ways to protect ourselves better. And there are some super easy things you can do right now that will make a huge difference, like creating backups, making sure your software is up to date, using a password manager to name a few. This is really a companion episode to episode three on cybersecurity, which featured Dan Skiles, who's the president of Shareholder Service Group. But today, in episode 15, we're lucky to have Randy Franklin join us. Aside from being a super nice guy, super nice guy, Randy is the chief information officer of a leading healthcare analytics organization and had lots to share with us. Before getting into IT, Randy earned a graduate degree in aerospace engineering from North Carolina State University and currently resides outside of Charlotte. Toward the end of the episode, Randy lists some easy steps that everyone can take right now to improve their resilience to a cyber hack. We'll also put these on our website in the post for this episode. This is another virtual episode, so you may notice a little difference in the audio between the folks here in the studio and Randy, who was beamed in over FaceTime. Representing the EvoFi team today is myself, Dave O'Brien, and Cecilia Fleming. If you're not already a subscriber to this podcast, please subscribe at Op Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also check us out on Twitter or Instagram at EvoFi Podcast. And just a side note, we appear to have a decent contingent of listeners out there from Sweden. Perhaps it's some of my old friends from my GE Capital days in Stockholm. Anyway, if you're one of them, drop the podcast a line at EvoFiPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And as a reminder, this podcast is 100% free of any tax, legal, or investment advice. Our goal is education and a little fun. If you need advice in any of the areas mentioned, tailored to your specific circumstances, feel free to give us a call and we'll see how we can help you. So with that, here's the EvoFi team talking with Randy Franklin. Enjoy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the EvoFi podcast, the finance podcast for humans. I'm John Clare, and with me today, I have Cecilia Fleming and Dave O'Brien. And via FaceTime, we have Randy Franklin, Chief Information Officer of a leading healthcare analytics organization. So welcome to you all, and especially you, Randy. How's the weather down in Charlotte? Oh, it's good at the moment. It's nice and sunny. It's just a little bit of a chill in the air. So it's a good day. It's a good February day. I don't know if it's been like it has been here, but we've been wet for a long time. It's been awful. Yeah, it's not been too wet down here. It's been pretty good. It's been very, very comfortable for the most part. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm looking around the table here, guys. What's going on in the Evo Richmond world? Well, it's kind of exciting. I mean, we just had our first uh, live uh, full disclosure with Robin Farzad event this weekend. That's true. So we're following up a really, really great podcast with a really, really mediocre one, right? And sending people to listen to the really, really great podcast. But this That's is actually a great one. I think this is, you know, Randy, we had you in town is probably, what, six months ago now, uh, maybe more. And, yeah, a little bit longer, but good. And we, good time. Uh, time flies. And we got really great feedback uh, on the event with you and Dan Skiles from Shareholder Service Group. Uh, and so I'm optimistic this is going to be one of our most popular ones. So we will uh, let you know how the tallies come in because we can – right now I think our most popular one is State Planning 101. So Kim Skiba, watch out. Randy Franklin's on the move. <laughs> From, oh, man. You're going to die to you're going to get hacked. Well, that just tells you what <laughs> people are interested in, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
So anyway, I, I referenced uh, episode back in episode three, we actually had Dad, Dan Skiles, uh, who's the president of Shareholder Service Group. He did the live podcast when he was in town, and Randy uh, promised that he would do the same. So Randy, we just can't thank you enough for being here. We're really lucky to have you. So thank you. I'm happy to help. Um, and on the Dan Skiles podcast, we focus more on financial hygiene, as I'll call it, and just common sense things to do. Uh, and Randy, your focus, at least in the event when you spoke, was more about, like I said, would be device hygiene and computer kind of activities and things just to do to be smart. And it's something that I think everybody can relate to. So this may be a mm -hmm. bit more um, practical, I think, for a lot of folks. So um, we're looking forward to getting into that. Absolutely. Um, so... As most of our guests go, um, they've listened to all of our podcasts in advance in preparation. And so, uh, Randy, I would guess you're probably no different. But uh, if this is the first time you're hearing about it, we have something called the Evo 5. Uh, and it's basically five questions that we use to get the guests kind of ready to go. Uh, just to have a little bit of fun up front so people can learn about you and uh, kind of what you're, what you're really like, and the Randy, the real person, and then we'll get into the important stuff. All right? Definitely. So, so here's the deal. There's no wrong answers, okay? Randy, what profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Uh, what profession, other than my own, would I like to attempt? Oh, man. I would say um, I would like to see myself, and I imagine myself, as a teacher. A teacher? Yes. I've always, I've always enjoyed teaching, and I believe that I'll probably spend the latter years of my working life as, a, as probably a math teacher, either in a community college or in some capacity. I, I really enjoy the act of teaching, and teaching's it's very important to me, and it's something that uh, I've always enjoyed, the art of teaching. Awesome. Well, that's why you're so good at pres presentations, and I think you'll be great on the podcast, so awesome. Awesome. All right. What's your favorite word? Oh, man. My favorite word. That's a good one. I would say, um, <clears throat> and my favorite word. I've got to think on that one. I, I'm going to just spout out a word that I've used here recently, which is orthogonal. And orthogonal means, uh, you know, at 90 degrees to another idea. So, if you want to say that two ideas are opposed to each other or or one idea intersects the other in a way that they have nothing to do with each other, you would say that they're orthogonal to each other. So that's I would think if they're completely opposed, would they be wouldn't that be 180 degrees? <laughs> yeah, they're they're not completely opposed. It's more like when they intersect, they Got have it. nothing in common. Yeah. Yeah. Like oil and water. They're orthogonal. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So Dave your, and John. Your, your, your challenge then is to fit that into some response later on the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely one of the best uh, favorite words we've heard. So it's it's probably the like highest like bonus point score. Okay. <laughs> on Scrabble. Yeah. Or SAT prep. <laughs> so, all right, Randy, oh what would you do differently if you knew that no one would judge you? What would I do differently if I knew new one would judge me? And when okay, what would I do differently? This is a good one. This is a good one. I would I would probably ride my bike to work every day, even though I would end up in the office really sweaty and very <laughs> tired every day, just because I know that it's the it's a better thing to do. Yeah. Um, and I would love to do it, but uh, there are a couple of intersections that are a little bit tricky to navigate on a bike. So that's what I would do differently, although people would probably wonder why I'm showing up to the office really sweaty every day. <laughs> How far of a ride would it be? Uh, maybe about five miles. Okay, so five, not too bad. Miles. Oh, that's not bad. I not could definitely bad. work up some sweat over five miles, though, Randy. I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Almost there. Greatest of all time. So I like to ask the, the goat question. Which is, if you had to think about somebody who you would consider one of the greatest of all time, and whether it's business or sports or entertainment, someone that comes to mind in, in, in really any field, what comes to mind for you? Who comes to mind? Uh, man, for me, I would say that it's Isaac Newton. 
Wow. Okay, that's a that's a that's a good one. We've not gotten anything quite so it's not serious cerebral. <laughs> you know, Isaac Newton. You know, in a lot of ways, he's kind of like the the father of modern um, modern physics. In a lot of ways, you know, Einstein is the most recent, but before that was Newton and Newton's understanding of the the laws of motion and the basic understanding of gravity and Newton also created or co-created calculus and a number of other hmm. fundamental maths that uh, without those, I mean, honestly, this, the world as we know it wouldn't exist. Well, I think we're going to have to change our five questions because you've just blown <laughs> yeah. everybody else away. So <laughs> well done. Well done. I, I just go for like, what's your, what, what's your favorite color and see yeah. like, you know, yeah. we're going to, we're going to have to pull it way back. Well, Randy, I'm going to apologize for this next question because we're going from Isaac Newton to name that tune. So with, with oh, respect to, to Mr. Newton. So this is just, we like to do one in the theme of the podcast. Uh, I'm going to play a few seconds of a song just in fun before we dive in and I'll give you a chance to answer it and uh, we'll go from there. So here, sit tight. I'm going to put it over the speakers. Okay. Oh man, no, I don't know the name of it, but I so know the tune. I'm not I know the sing tune, but I cannot name the name. I see you and you <laughs> see me. Private Eyes by Daryl Hall and John Oates. Oh uh, man, that, yeah. I know the song, but I could not have named the name of it. Can't I certainly would not have gotten the name of the band. Hall and Oates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I figured that that was uh, the last one we did with Dan Skiles. We did Somebody's Watching Me yeah. by Rockwell. It's a Motown tune, yeah. but this one came to mind. It's like, it's perfect for our topic. So Hall and Oates nice. from Isaac Newton to Hall and Oates. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, let's try and redeem ourselves here on our side. Uh, Dave just, uh, yeah. So, so Randy at a high level, kind of, obviously the line of work that you're in is, is a very specialized line of work for the, for the listeners. Give us a little bit of background on how you actually ended up in this line of work before we dive into the details. Yeah, sure. So how did I get into IT? So again, getting a, a, a little bit geeky, when I was in graduate school, um, in graduate school, I studied mechanical and aerospace engineering. And we wrote a lot of software that um, was executed on some large liquid-cooled supercomputers. And at the time, I became aware of the fact that while universities and other research institutions could afford to acquire some really sophisticated and expensive equipment. They rarely had all of the staff that they needed to support these equipment. So oftentimes what was happening is that the students or the research associates would basically spend part of their time acting as the administrators and the caretakers of this equipment. So during my time in school, I learned kind of on the job training, if you will, a lot about how to manage complex computer systems. And through my graduate curriculum, I discovered that I enjoyed the IT side of things just as much, if not more, than the science of it. So when I came to the end of my master's degree, I decided that I wanted to switch into IT full-time. And this was also at the time that the dot-com boom was going full tilt. So it, it was a really fun time to be uh, starting out in IT. So that's where I jumped in, uh, joined a small company with a few other people that I knew from uh, graduate school. And we ended up being fairly successful in that adventure, but I've never looked back. I've been in IT now for over 19 years. Wow. And where'd you go to grad? Where'd you go to undergrad and grad school? I uh, did both at North Carolina State. Okay. Go pack. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. That's another ACC rival. Yeah. Were you big into football when you were there? Do you watch football games? Not too much. Yeah. You're too busy studying, probably like all of us here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so talk about if you look out there in the landscape, what are the just kind of diving right in? What What are the biggest risks out there to to, to consumers that you see in this space right now? You know, I think the biggest risk when I think about this is that um, I don't know that people are fully cognizant of the fact that there are groups of organizations that are actively trying to 
subvert people into giving up their credentials or giving up information about themselves without them even realizing it. Um, individuals primarily organized crime, which is what most of the, um, which is where most of the security nefariousness is originating these days, are actively trying to mine the general populations for information that can then be used to compromise banking accounts, compromise other types of um, credential-based systems as much as they can. And from a threat standpoint, I, I think that it's easy to look at the news and watch um, events that happen at Marriott or events that happen at Google and Facebook and believe that that's happening to someone else. That's happening far away from me. My neighbor's not having that problem. And it's easy to create an impression within yourself that I'm not at risk, or at least I'm not as at much of a risk as I believe I am. But the fact of the matter is, is that you are always being, a, someone is always trying to get you to cough up your credentials, whether you realize it or not. And we'll, we'll talk about those activities here in a little bit that are, that are pervasive, constant, and always occurring in the background. And they're just waiting for the un, unwitting victim to happen to take the bait. One of the things you mentioned to me when you were here uh, again, over six months ago was kind of these organizations you mentioned uh whether it's organized crime, but some of these are actually like real businesses in other countries. And you mentioned that they're people go to work every day and they punch in and they have benefits. And this is like yeah. a legitimate profession in some, some areas, right? It, it really is. I mean, you know, we, we are very fortunate in the United States to not have to worry so much about this kind of thing because it's generally, uh, generally policed fairly aggressively in America but in other countries, especially countries that are not nearly as far along their socioeconomic climb as America, like Cambodia, Venezuela, um, you know, Colombia, um, any of the some of the more depressed Eastern Bloc countries, areas of Russia, um, many of these countries look the other way, and it is not at all a problem in some of these countries to set up an entire organization filled with people whose job is to try and exfiltrate data from people. And these individuals are paid a salary. You know, they, they are rewarded with some sorts of organizational benefits like time off and other things. And they're paid a monetary incentive based on the amount of information they're able to exfiltrate from, from individuals. So I think that the, the, impression that some people have of the overweight teenager who lives in his parents' basement is it's a bit dated at this point. At, at this point in the game, cybercrime is a it's a professional industry. And it's organized around um businesses in countries that either look the other way or just lack the infrastructure to police it. And many of the individual contributors are they've largely been pushed out of the way because th there's just not enough money in it for an individual, but businesses are, there are active businesses out there that are employed to exfiltrate information from large numbers of people. So Randy, you said, so cybercrime is this professional industry and sounds like there are basically two categories that people need to worry about. There's the data that's stolen elsewhere, like Marriott got hacked and they had my, name, address, I don't know what else they had versus Passport things, numbers. things that are uh, stolen directly from me because uh, somebody sent me an email saying that they're a foreign dignitary and all they need to do is get my information so that I can hold on to a few million dollars for them. Um, which of these things should people be more freaked out about and more vigilant about? Because I would think that a lot of people listening thinking, you know, yeah, I'm not going to give up my data to somebody that's not a known institution like my bank or, you know, my financial planner or somebody like that, CPA. Um, you know, I think that let, let me ask you to I'm going to ask you to repeat that question one more time. So which is worse? Uh, which should people worry about more? Their data being stolen 
from whether it's, you know, the DSW, they were hacked years ago, the big hack or, you know, Home Depot, uh, Marriott, you know, any airline, any of those where, you know, somebody's got my data because I've got an account. I've got, you, you can't buy anything online anymore. You can't even subscribe for, you know, a free newsletter without putting in a lot of your personal data. So that's one, right? And then the other is what you were sharing, which is these uh, professional cyber criminals trying to get me to cough up my information to them. And which is the bigger okay. threat? And, and, and how should people view these two? You know, I think both of them, obviously both of them are, are threats to you in some way. Uh, from a past Let's say that someone has stolen your credentials from uh, DSW or Marriott or Facebook. And so now your credential is one of probably 100 million in a database that's available for sale for a few dollars per user out there on the dark web. Um, that's certainly a risk to you, but you are, again, one of many millions of compromised identities out there. So your likelihood of being hit is not great, but if it happens, it'll be, it'll be large versus someone actively trying to exfiltrate information from you. Um, I think that I would certainly worry more about the ones where people are actively going to fish you for information. And these are people that will try to bait you into clicking on a website or bait you into submitting information into an online form um, or even calling your phone and they will actively try to subvert your your social defenses to get you to feel that this is a trustworthy person that you can hand information to so what are some of the, um, and like, can you get examples so like how do people recognize that that's what's happening to them. You know, I think one is to recognize what are the typical ways in which people would ask you for help. So, for example, um, many of us have seen enough emails from our bank where the banks have repeatedly said, we will never ask you for your credentials. We will never ask you to validate your credentials. You know, if there's ever an issue, we will call you. So if you see an email and it's from your bank, or at least pretends to be from your bank and says, hey, there has been some suspicious activity in your account. We need you to log in and verify this activity. You need to be very scrutinous about that. And if you have, what I would suggest is I would suggest that you call your bank and don't call the phone number listed in the email. Look up your bank and call the phone number listed on their website. Um, because again, getting back to the professional side of these organizations is the phone numbers that may be listed in these emails will connect to the call centers that they may have set up in, you know, uh, the Philippines or Cambodia or Myanmar. And uh, you'll actually be talking to someone who will say, hi, this is Bank of America. My name is Jimmy. How can I help you? Um, so they are creating an illusion that will trick you into giving up your information. You know, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned that two nights ago I was driving home uh, and I got a text message. That sounds weird. Um, I, I got a text message from Capital One saying, did you just spend $400 on Comcast? And it said, immediately click here to log in to verify your purchases, just like you said. And I clicked on it. I pulled over. I have to say at a rest stop on 64. I pulled over. I clicked on it. And I said, you know what? Randy's coming on and I bet he's going to tell me not to click that I need to go call them. So I went to the website and called them. Uh, and lo and behold, it really was capital one, but even by reputable, uh, uh, emails and companies that do it all the time, you really do have to be careful. You really do. And it's not terribly difficult to spoof the phone numbers that you see in text messages. And it's a, that's becoming a more comp, uh, that's becoming a more popular, threat vector now is that people can spoof the telephone number that a text message shows up as. So mm -hmm. even though you recognize the phone number, it may not actually be a text message from the person who you think it is. So I, I would say all that to be said that try to not trust the system or the email implicitly. Try to ask yourself, okay, if this is a real problem, wouldn't they be calling me or shouldn't they be asking me to call them? 
And let me go look up their real website, their real number, mm-hmm. as best I can. And let me try to reach out to them and verify. There's no – everyone is busy. And, of course, these individuals are taking advantage of the fact that we're busy and we're trying to make quick decisions and we want to be responsible and we want to be reactive. But at the same time, we have to consciously remind ourselves to slow down, pause, think about what the right action is, and then take that moment to then reach out to who we know is the responsible party and ask them, to your point, hey, I just got this. Is this, re- is this real? Is this legitimate? Or is it not? And it may be, or it may not be. Um, but people are very quick, and people are generally trusting. And that's what these individuals are taking advantage of. They're taking advantage of trust and the fact that people want to be responsible. So you you bring a great segue to the next topic, which is kind of some basic good site, what I'm calling cyber hygiene. Overall, you mentioned being aware of certain things and the emails you get and what you click on. Are there other things before we get into kind of the more proactive kind of device management? Are there things that people should kind of immediately stop doing uh, or or start doing? Again, I don't want to jump too far into the you know, password protectors and all that stuff, but things like right now that people can easily do or not do. I think the, by far and away, the best thing that people can do is to uh, stop the habit, and we all do it to some degree, of using the same username and password over and over again. Um, because to, you know, to the question earlier around, am I more worried about past breaches or current active threats? You're still victim from a past breach if you've used that username and password in 50 other websites. You know, because in the systems are organized in a way that when you sign up for a new service, it has no idea that you've reused that username and password 60 other times. It assumes that the username and password you're providing is the first instance of that. But to if, if that username and password was tied up in, say, the Cambridge Analytica breach that Facebook encountered a, a little while ago, that username and password combination can now unlock any of those websites that it's been used in. So I would say that the the most important thing that people can stop doing is to stop the habit of using the same username and password over and over again. It is the easiest thing to do. It is the thing that will protect you the most, but it does take some effort to move past. And you know, we'll talk about it in a moment, but there are tools available to help you with that. Um, I, I would say that and in, if we flip to the things that people could start doing, I think it's it's a short list and it's not terribly complicated. The first thing is make sure you have backups and really ask yourself, okay, if I lose access to X or Y or Z, how would I get that data back? And really try to think about it. You know, what would happen if it went away, if, uh, if it disappeared? Do you have the ability to gather that data from another source? Do you have all of your photos somewhere else? Do you have all of your, um, if you're a small business owner, do you have all of your business information in another location or in another service that's protected differently? Because, you know, one of the things that we'll touch on is ransomware, where your data may be encrypted with a key that you don't have access to. And you may or may not be able to pay a ransom. People would suggest you not pay the ransom, but uh, your only recourse may be to restore from backup. So things to start doing would be, one, verify that you have backups. Really go through your inventory of your intellectual um, possessions, your, your digital possessions, and ask yourself, do you have a backup? And if you don't, try to think about how you would get a backup of that. So how, a lot of us who use, you know, the cloud, whether it's Dropbox or we use Citrix ShareFile or iCloud, I mean, some of us would consider those as backups. Tell a little, what, what can you say about those type of services and how does that fit in with a ransomware type attack and the backups of that? And I'm sure there's different sites, right, where that data exists. 
there there are and you know some of those services have the ability to allow you to go back in time if you will so you can recover um a an unencrypted copy of your data um but if someone say compromises your identity your username and password and logs into your dropbox account and deletes everything mm-hmm. um you, you know you want to make sure that you have another copy of that somewhere else and if you if you throw in some Google terms on Dropbox backup, there's an entire ecosystem out there of small tools that are that are not expensive that help you copy data across more than one service so that that way you can copy your data from Dropbox into Box or into OneDrive or iCloud. You can move your data around and have it in more than one service at one time because even though these services will promise to um, do some level of backup of your data, they make no guarantees that a restore of that data is usable by you. So that's really the first I've heard of kind of on cloud services kind of having redundant cloud uh, backup. So mm-hmm. that's something for folks to think about. Um, you mentioned something. I'm going to jump ahead and we'll go back to uh, kind of device stuff in a second. But you mentioned ransomware. You know, we've had some mm-hmm. people that we know who have been victims of that. Any advice on if someone gets that message on their screen that says your data has been locked, you know, unless you call and give us whatever X thousand dollars. I mean, what kind of advice can you give people should they get that nasty message on their screen? What what do they do? I would say the first thing to do is to not just pay the ransom, um, even though you may be very tempted to and you may see a countdown timer that says you've got 24 hours to do it. Um, don't pay the ransom because even if it unlocks and sometimes it doesn't unlock the data, all they'll do is they'll just come back and hit you again in, mm-hmm. in another couple of days and ask for you know five times the same amount of money. So don't don't pay the ransom. Um, the fastest thing to do if you're an individual is to probably call a local geek squad. Um, they, these individuals have some tools and they, they also have access to other resources that they can help with. Um, if you have um, access to another computer, you can reach out to the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center, which has a pretty easy website to remember. It's ic3.gov, and that notes. will give you access to some resources to um, to reach out for as well on your own behalf. Um, but certainly, the best the best prevention for that is to make sure that you have a good backup and um, Having known a couple of people myself who've been um, victims of ransomware type activities, it's much easier to um, just have the confidence to know that, okay, well, I, I've got a copy of all of my data, so I'll just reinstall my computer <laughs> and I'll just restore my data. Um, but uh, but again, make sure you have backups. So that's an interesting point, though. So. If you have backups of all your data, I mean, you can literally wipe your computer. I mean, maybe you recommend using Geek Squad or something like that, but it could be as simple as, as that. Correct. I, I yes. If simple. you have backups, your backups are the safest and the most sure backstop you have in the event of any sort of cyber activity. Um, so whether Randy, you're a, go ahead. Randy, let me just uh, jump in for a minute. So earlier you were talking about backups of your um, cloud services. And I think here you're also talking about local backups using like a backup drive, whether it's um, uh, Apple Time Capsule or, you know, some other Seagate backup mm-hmm. drive locally. <clears throat> First, correct so far? Yep, that's okay. right. And then so when somebody um, gets some type of a you know, ransomware uh, hit on their computer, some you know, they're, they're working online and a little pop-up comes up saying, you know, Hey, I'm taking over your computer and I'm watching what you're doing and I'm mapping all your keystrokes. Um, one of the best practices that I've read is they should just immediately detach from the internet, like take their modem offline so that they're not online anymore. Is that a good practice or does that not really matter at that point? Um, I don't think that it bears the same um, effect that it used to. Um, nowadays, I don't think it really matters. I don't think it really matters um, these days, not as much as it used to. That used to be good practice. Um, what can I would say that if you are in an enterprise where you have um, many computers, that would be a good suggestion. But if you're in a home, 
um, you probably only have one, maybe two computers at, at, to begin with. But to answer your question, I don't think that it would make much of a difference at this point. It won't stop the infection because the encryption has already occurred. So that person's not actually on the other end of your computer at that moment. It's just automated at that point in most cases. Correct. Okay. If it's, a, if it's an encryption, if it's an encryption ransomware where it has literally encrypted your data, that those, those types of um, malware are running on autopilot. So at that it's point, just, it's just wipe that computer yeah. clean back up. Yeah, it's just a program that's running on autopilot. There isn't a person driving it from the other end. Now, so, go ahead. A, go question, ahead. a question that I think some people might be asking is, okay, well, what about my backups? If like time capsule is backing up all the time, how far back should you go when this happens? Should you go back you know, a couple days, you know, therefore losing some stuff that you might have been working on? Should you go back a month? Is there a best practice there? Um, there isn't really a best practice other than you would just go back to the point where you recognize that the data is not corrupted. And the, the encryption software is independent of the data that it encrypts. So when you're fortunately by using a service like a time capsule or any other sort of um, backup technology that you pay a little bit of the money for, that technology is going to copy the data in such a way that a an encryption software will not affect it. That's really good for people to know. So if you're using a Mac, Time Capsule is just a part, or Time Machine is part of the operating system. And if you've got it connected to a backup drive, it's backing up on an ongoing basis and it's not going to back up the virus. Is that what? Correct. What about That's people correct. who are still using... I think they're called PCs still. They run some type of, <laughs> yes. I think it's called Windows. Yeah, you know, you're going to look at tools like Mosey or um, uh, what are some of the other ones? like uh, Carbonite, uh, is that another one still? Carbonite, yes, thank you. Carbonite is a good, easy one. Carbonite, Mosey, any of those tools. I would, my, my best recommendation is find something that you have to pay a little bit of money for. And by a little bit of money, some of these programs are, are dollars or tens of dollars. Just avoid the free software. When you're, when you're looking at things like backup capabilities or um, antivirus, anti-malware, be sure you're actually paying a subscription. Now, now, to your point, on the Macintoshes or the Apple computers, the time capsule capability is part of the operating system. So you do have a bit of an advantage there on the Apple platform that they do include within the operating system a very robust backup technology. So let me ask um, kind of a, a question, go sideways a little bit there, talk about, you know, Macs versus PCs and um, you know, like real hardware versus play school. <clears throat> but what about all these mobile devices? Everybody's <laughs> got Everybody has a tablet. Everybody has a smartphone. How concerned should they be about some type of virus invading that? And if it gets in there, is it going to populate itself into other devices or vice versa? You, you should be wary of it. I would say that the Apple devices are more resilient than the Android devices. Um, just because the Apple platform is a little bit more locked down, if you will, um, the Apple iPhones have, uh, you know, because of their limits in terms of the number of things you can do with them, it also makes them a harder target for hackers. Um, but you should look at your iPhone no differently than you look at your um, laptop or your desktop computer. It's no different. It's, just, it's still a computer. You need to make sure that you're keeping it up to date. You need to make sure that you're not using one that's so old that it no longer receives updates. And because these computers, you know, a, a phone is nothing more than a handheld computer at this point. When you bring it home and connect it to the wireless network, it sees all of your other devices too, right? So you want to make sure that you're, you're not allowing one device to become compromised and then bring it into a network where it can see other devices that it may also be able to infect laterally. Wow. Okay. So 
I'm a little freaked out, but um, what do we do? So talking more about these devices now, I mean, you brought up some great points on the actual, you know, computers, but most people, like you said, use that little computer that's in their hand, which is their cell phone. And so, you know, I know we talked a lot about, you know, password protection and fingerprint and two-factor authentication. So kind of for some of the folks out there, what is what is the stuff, you know, specific, I don't know if you can name different programs that you recommend, but what are those things that everybody should, should, you know, be thinking about using. I think. Um, let me let me let me prepose that just a moment for going back to the things that people can start doing, and it's easy to become overwhelmed with this. But I think the the thing that I want to impress on most is that you can become very resilient by just adopting a couple of very easy practices, and one is make sure you have some form of backup. I can't stress enough to just ask yourself, get some help, call Geek Squad, ask ask the smart person in the neighborhood. Just ask them to help you assess whether or not you actually have backups and how you can get backups. That's by far and away the best backstop you can provide. The, the second thing is to just make sure your devices are up to date. You know, every device has an update feature. And as vulnerabilities are discovered, the manufacturers are producing updated versions of these. And newer newer devices are fortunately coming pre-configured such that they automatically update them themselves. So the, the, the consumers are driving this behavior on behalf of the manufacturers to make sure that the manufacturers can always update their software on your behalf without you having to do anything uh, on your own. So have backups, update your devices. And then the, the, the third one would be using a password manager. And the password manager and the two most common tools, the two that I prefer most, but there, there, there are definitely a number of them are Dashlane and LastPass. And these two tools allow you to have some assistance in making sure that you're not reusing usernames and passwords. So, for example, for myself, I let this, I let these tools um, choose the password for each individual login that I have. So, for example, you know, I, I kind of pride myself on the fact that I actually don't know any of the passwords to any of my sites. Um, I don't know what my bank password is. I don't know what my password to log into Facebook is. I don't know what my password to Hulu is or Netflix. I have no idea. Um, I let my password manager choose the password, and it's typically a very long string, you know, typically 20 or 25 characters long oftentimes, and it's made up of um, letters, numbers, symbols, um, but the password manager stores this on my behalf. So all I have to do is use the password manager to um, log into the service on my behalf. So the only password that I need to know is the master password that allows me to unlock the tool. And that master password is only available to me. Um, but it gives me the confidence to know that I have no reused passwords anywhere. And these tools are really have come a long way to the point where um, both Dashlane and LastPass, if you connect them to your email accounts, they will actually scan your email looking for all of the websites that you may have a username and password at. And then it will um, aggregate all of these together and then help you move down a path of changing the passwords at each of these websites such that they are unique. It takes a little bit of time but once you're once you're on that horse, you'll never want to get off of it because it gives you the peace of mind of knowing that no incident in any one area can affect you in any other area, which is if you're, you know, 36 percent of people, um, only 36 percent of people actually use different passwords in different websites. So that means that 64%, according to a recent survey, I just pulled that data here just a little bit ago, 64% of people reuse their passwords. 
across websites. So let me ask a question because I think some of the people out there are probably wondering, yeah, but what happens if your account at LastPass gets hacked? They have everything. Can you talk a little bit about the security of your kind of personal database there? Definitely. So that database is local to you in the sense that the database, if you will, is encrypted and only available for your eyes on the device that you're looking at at that moment in time. So the service provider, Dashlane or LastPass, they never have in their possession the master key that you can use to unlock your data. So it's almost like your security lockbox at the bank, right, where the bank has a key and you have a key. Um, the bank's never in possession of both keys at the same time. So without your key, you can't unlock the data. So you want to have, a, obviously, a very strong master password. And oftentimes, I know with LastPass, for us, there's also a fingerprint involved. Uh, now there's yes. this whole facial recognition thing. And I guess, best yes. of my knowledge, that's about as solid of technology as there can be right now, huh? There are. I mean, you know, the facial recognition technologies are becoming more and more advanced. And um, especially in, in places like China, they're using facial recognition to allow people to do just about anything these days. And I think that you're going to see it continue to march that way. You're going to see biometrics become more and more prevalent. You're going to see your mobile phone become more and more the master key for things in your life. You're, I think you're really going to see a point where your phone is used to unlock your house, to unlock your car, to unlock your computer. Uh, we're, we're moving in that direction where your, your telephone or your mobile device is going to be your master key. So I noticed we're we're blowing through the time here, and Randy, I want to give you a chance to kind of lay out a few things. You may have some things on your mind that that we haven't gotten to yet. Um, is there anything that comes to mind immediately that you'd like to add? I know Dave has a question, but I want to give you a chance um, to kind of add anything to the commentary that we may have missed so far. Yeah, I think I just want to continue to reiterate that it's very easy to become lost, and it's very easy to become intimidated in this regard, but. Uh, There are, and we've touched on a number of them, but there are four things that you can do that will improve your posture significantly. And I'll list them each. One is have backups. Two, stop reusing passwords. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Three is use a password manager. And four is everywhere where you can, where you can enable two-factor authentication or what's also called multi-factor authentication, enable that. And every, every organization that handles any sort of sensitive data, like your bank or uh, it, certainly many workplaces now offer um, two-factor authentication. I think even, even Hulu or Netflix now offers two-factor authentication where even if you provide a valid username and password, it's still going to say, it's still going to say, hey, I just texted you a, a, a six-digit number. I need you to type that in now. So my kids can't that get does, in my account. Yeah, exactly. But what that does is that it just adds an additional layer on top of the username and password that says that, okay, not only did you provide a username and password, but I need to have an assurance that you are the person who you think you say you are. And if I t- send a text message to this phone number, I assume that you're in possession of the device that this phone number is attached to. So two-factor authentication. So again, really quick, have backups, stop reusing passwords, start using a password manager, turn on two-factor authentication everywhere you can. And if you do those four things, I, I tell you, you are much better than 99% of people out there. You don't need to buy fancy, sophisticated technology. You don't need to do anything that's over the top or incredibly complicated. It's, Randy, I'll, it's I'll ask, one, uh, I'll ask mm-hmm. one question if this is the number five. So that's all great when you're home. But what about when you're traveling or you're at a Starbucks or someplace with public Wi-Fi? Uh, use a VPN at all times? Don't use public yeah, Wi-Fi? Yeah, so it's good that you ask because it, <laughs> if you um, certainly be aware of the fact that whenever you're using a public wireless network, you have no idea who else is on that wireless network. Um, and 
if you're using a tool like a Dashlane or a LastPass, those technologies actually come embedded with a VPN that you can also use. So you can use the VPN capability within those tools and, uh, and it gives you the ability to have not only a password manager, but you also have the ability to leverage the VPN that's provided with the tool itself. But certainly anytime you're in an untrusted area, don't trust the wireless. It, you have no idea who's on that wireless network and you have no idea what they're able to do. Hey, we can, uh, was one subscription we can get rid of, Dave, if LastPass has VPN, we don't need a special VPN. Excellent. Yeah, Randy, you helped to save costs too. today. Good. <laughs> so I actually think Improved those improve security and lower costs. Your, your, uh, you know, your your four tips that were very helpful. Mom, I know you're listening. Those are easy to do, so please do them immediately. <laughs> so, um, hey, let me go around the horn real quick, uh, including you, Randy. If there's anything last words, um, like I said, we've gone through this pretty fast, but um, as you mentioned last time, Randy, this thing these change all the time. So having kind of a review every you know couple of years is probably not a bad idea. So. Um, I want to get even get into nano computing. I think that's what you called it, where that changes all the rules with, you know, some of this current security. But oh yeah, quantum. Yeah, quantum. It, um, sorry, we won't nano. go into quantum. Very tiny. Yeah, computers. quantum is a whole other level. Yeah, quantum computing. <laughs> I'm a finance guy. I'm surprised I even got half of it right. Computers. You got the, you got the computer. Well, you're, you're going to be thinking about blockchain. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, uh, hey, anyone else here, Cecilia, Dave? Anything uh, before we let Randy off the hook? I think that was great and have a lot of takeaways I can implement immediately, which is great. Thank you, Randy. Let's just make sure everybody who's listening does at least one of those four things. Yep. Randy, yes. anything anything uh, from you here before we wrap up? Um, you know, I would just uh, I would just continue to remind people that it's it's not terribly hard to become resilient in this regard, and it's just a few simple steps. It takes a little bit of time, but a few simple steps will significantly improve your resilience in the event of a, of a cyber incident. Resilience. I think we're gonna have to use that word in the, in the uh, intro of the podcast. So Randy Franklin, thanks very much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, for, Randy. All, for all you listeners out there, check us out on Apple podcasts or Spotify, uh, or find us on Twitter or Instagram at Evo five podcast. You can shoot us an email at Evo five podcast at gmail.com. So again, thanks to Randy Franklin and Dave and, Cecilia, and we will see you all again real soon. Take care now. Bye-bye.